Hi, this is Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. This is Season 1, Episode 9, on Understanding God's Justice, and the scripture we'll focus on is John chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. But before we get into the text, I want to let you in on something new for this podcast. We've just added a feature that if you'd like to financially support the production costs of the podcast, you can do that now by going to my hosting platform, which is, and I'll say it twice, anchor.fm backslash Jeff dash Ebert backslash support. So that's anchor.fm backslash Jeff dash Ebert backslash support. You can do this for as little as 99 cents a month or $4.95 a month or $9.99 a month. And I'll post that address on my Facebook and Instagram pages as well. The Anchor platform allows me to see who becomes a supporter, but it doesn't give me any way to connect with you. So if you do become a supporter, please send me an email because as a bonus, I want to send you the downloadable script for each weekly podcast. Something you can use for your own study or maybe for your small group. By the end of season one, you're going to have a great file on the entire Gospel of John. So you can email me at jebert1 at icloud.com. That's jebert1 at icloud.com. Last week, we had a chance to look at that great verse from John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people know John 3.16, but it gets a little fuzzy after that, right? What's John 3.17? That's when people start to run aground. But the context of the whole chapter is very important. We should never treat individual verses in the Bible in isolation from their context, the verses before and the verses after. Because you can prove almost anything if you take a verse of the Bible out of context. I mean, I think that's what most politicians do. They hunt and peck to find a Bible verse that seems to support what fits their agenda and generally mangle the original meaning because they completely ignore the context. And please write this down. The text without the context becomes a pretext. The text without the context becomes a pretext. When people cherry-pick the Bible and isolate verses or lift verses out of their context, that's when a lot of bad theology happens. A Bible verse means only what the original author intended it to mean and what the original listeners could have understood or conceived it to mean. Everything beyond that is an interpretation or an application. And that's why it's so important to try and get back into the original context and what the Bible meant in its original setting. Too many Christians kind of bypass that altogether. They start with, well, what does this mean to me today? How do I feel about it? And those are important steps in reading and studying the Bible, but those are the questions that should be the last steps after you've taken time to try and delve into the original context and wrestled a, a bit with uh, you know, what it meant. You've got to find out what it meant before you figure out what it means, Okay. We need to know what it meant before we go into what it means today. Don't just skip over 2,000 years or more, or you may misinterpret what the Bible is actually saying. So what we read next is John 3.17, and following comes as a bit of a surprise to some people. Jesus goes on to describe this amazing blend of two attributes of God, his love and his justice. And it's kind of a shock to some. I mean, it shouldn't be. It should be... And encouragement, it should stimulate some 
serious thought in us if we really believe in Jesus and what he taught. So let's listen in again to Jesus in this late night conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. I am not a huge country music fan, but I've always had, had a lot of respect for Johnny Cash. Uh, he had that gravelly voice, sort of a troubadour for the hard living people. I mean, from his prison songs like Folsom Prison Blues to his own struggles with alcohol and drug addiction, his songs kind of connected with people and his popularity had never been higher than when he died back in 2003. One of his songs had just been nominated for MTV's Music Video of the Year. And so Johnny Cash was cool again. That's amazing, especially because so many of his later songs and videos spoke so explicitly about his faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, take the song on his final album called The Man Comes Around. It's an apocalyptic growl about the second coming of Christ and the judgment of God. Listen to some of these lyrics. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everyone won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling and voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come when the man comes around. Man, that's something. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. That is a heavy song. It's a hard message. Jesus' second coming, coming not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king to judge the world. Now, John 3.16 told us that love prompted God to reach out to this world. In verse 17, Jesus begins to tell us some harder stuff about God because God isn't just love. God isn't just love. God is also righteous and holy, and he cannot and will not overlook the darkness of sin and the darkness of unbelief. These are strong words spoken here by Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the most compassionate one. Jesus is the most loving one. And yet here we have one of the hardest, I think one of the toughest sentences in the entire Bible. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. These are the words of Jesus, the compassionate one. And Jesus uses a really tough word, the word condemnation. Boy, that is not something that's talked about much anymore in American churches. That's like radioactive. That is toxic. That is buzzkill, especially in so-called seeker-friendly churches where often the gospel is maybe a little watered down to make it easier for new people to swallow. 
but it's in traditional churches too. We love John 3.16, but John 17, 18, 19 are a problem in our pluralistic culture. And so we tend to avoid it, condemn. It sounds awful, and that's because it is awful. I mean, it's so heavy. Jesus tells us an undeniable spiritual truth that some will experience eternal separation from God. And if Jesus said it, then friends, we've got to wrestle with it whether we like it or not. We can't just dismiss it or erase these verses from the gospel. When I was considering making a move towards Jesus Christ, this was one of my biggest issues. How could a loving God send anyone into condemnation? A lot of people stumble stumble over that one. And of course, I never asked, and most people don't ever ask the parallel question, how could a just and holy God allow everyone into heaven? We like the loving side of God's nature, but the holiness side, the justice side, uh, we kind of forget that side of things. What Jesus says here is that, in one sense, God doesn't condemn anyone. God isn't in the condemning business. God does not eagerly judge people. In fact, the message of chapter 3 is that God has gone absolutely to the furthest length of all of God's infinite power so that no one need be condemned away from him. No one ever needs to be condemned. No one. God gave his only son upon the cross to create a way for people to be forgiven, to bridge the gap between a holy God and imperfect people. And in Jesus, we see the extent, the length, the distance God went to do just that. For the second person of the Trinity to leave heaven, to be emptied of his divine privilege, to come to this earth to die for the sins of humanity, that's how far God was willing to go so that no one need ever to be separate from God. God doesn't desire to condemn people, but he gives to us the capacity as free moral agents to believe or not to believe. What condemns is not God, what condemns is unbelief. To look at all that God has done, and in his beautiful way of not forcing us to love him. And then a person chooses not to follow, chooses to say no to God's gift of forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is that that's the route to condemnation. The path to condemnation is to know the gift and then to say no to the giver. When we say no to Jesus Christ, we condemn ourselves by turning away from God's provision for our salvation. This is the thing that modern people don't get. The thing that's so hard for modern people to believe, according to the Bible, we don't start this life neutral towards God. We do not start with a clean slate morally before a holy God. We start with a sin nature. Scripture teaches we start separated from God, disconnected, unplugged from him, lost. As a race, this is our predicament. There is a tear in our souls, a tear in the fabric of the universe, and we have it from birth. That's the tragic reality of our human condition. We are not as God desired us to be. We are not as God created us to be. We are fallen. The first thing our parents give to us is a fallen sinful nature. And we are so fallen, we don't even recognize how far we are from God. The Bible is the story of God's activity to fix our problem. God is on a rescue mission. He's on a search and rescue mission. And as we've seen previously in the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is presented as the one who came to reconnect us with God, to plug us back in, to redeem us, to rescue those who are saturated with sin. To me, this is the only logical explanation for all the human evil in the world. If we were all born morally neutral, the world would be a much better place. But because we are all born with a sinful nature, 
It permeates everything and brings frustration and anger and greed and violence and all the other symptoms of our brokenness. We are all in need of a Savior. And then the next question always pops up. Well, what about those people who've never heard about Jesus? How can God possibly judge them? I can understand if someone hears about Jesus and then openly rejects him. But what about the people who don't know about Jesus? How can they be condemned? It's not fair if they've never heard about Jesus to condemn them for not then believing in him. And it's a common objection, and it's an important one. There's always some heathen out there somewhere in a jungle in some corner of the globe that people are so concerned about. But realistically, folks, the people who raise this objection, they're not lying awake at night worrying about that dude in Papua New Guinea. They're doing some fancy mental footwork to get around their own unbelief in Jesus. They're hoping to get some wiggle room for their own salvation. So let's kind of look at this one head on. You know, one of the great motivations for Christian living in this world is to share our faith with others. If individuals are concerned about the eternal destinies of other people, then they should be committed to sharing the gospel locally and globally. They should be committed to worldwide Christian outreach and mission so folks might hear about Jesus. And there is an urgency about our message. This whole thought that people don't know about Jesus and God's love for them, that should propel us out to share the good news. But the primary reason is not the fear of condemnation. We're not out there just uh, promoting, you know, eternal uh, life insurance. Our motivation should be because life makes so much more sense when we live in God's presence, when we connect with our creator. And then we become his instruments to express the love of God in this hurting and broken world. What is really sad is that many parts of the Christian church have lost their sense of urgency, that there's no fire in their belly to share Jesus. Some have lost the theological imperative, but others have just succumbed to the pressure of cultural pluralism, saying you found the truth that's not popular today and you will get canceled in many circles for saying so. And though we do have an imperative to share the good news, in reality, there are very few places where Jesus is not known. Uh, now, whether or not people have been given an accurate and compelling picture of Jesus, his life and teachings, whether they have really heard the gospel in its truest sense, I mean, that's another question for another time. For now, let's just think about what the few who have uh, never even heard of the name of Jesus. How can a just God condemn them? Well, as you read the Bible, the first chapter of Romans, we see that God reveals himself to all humanity. One way he does that is through nature. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 go like this. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what Paul was saying was that there's enough of God revealed in nature that it should at least spark some curiosity in people about a creator. Now, nature alone is not fully instructive about God. Sin has done a lot of damage to the natural world as well as to human beings. There's a lot of beauty and grandeur in nature, but nature by itself is violent. It's kill or be killed, and it is very indifferent to suffering. But what the Apostle Paul says in Romans is that people are without excuse because they've had the opportunity to see the glory of God through natural revelation. And it is possible that people can move in God's direction on their own volition without having a great deal of understanding as to who this God is. This is a great and hopeful thing. 
Through nature, God meets them. Through nature, God moves towards people and reveals himself. Paul goes on in Romans 2, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles, that means non-Jewish people, when Gentiles who do not have the law or the Bible do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and that their thoughts are now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So a simple way of understanding what uh, Paul's saying is that God judges people on how they respond to the amount of light that they've received. God judges people based on how they respond to the amount of light that they've received. People throughout the centuries who never knew the Jewish God Yahweh, who never heard the name of Jesus, who have never had the opportunity to respond to an invitation of Jesus, who have never understood the gift of salvation or the giver of salvation, God is still reaching out to them. God is able to reveal something of himself through what he has created. Not the full revelation that we now have in Jesus, not the full light of the gospel as we know it, but partially revealing who God is, partial but real. And Paul says this is written on their hearts and God will judge based on how they respond to what they know. Judged by their faith response to the amount of light that they've received. I like the last part of that verse from Romans 2. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. That tells me it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know about all those other people and what kind of response is necessary for them. But I do know God. I would like to believe that God's love is big enough to save everyone, even those who consciously reject his invitation, even those who passively reject his invitation. I believe Jesus knows more about that than I do, and I'm content to leave the question of who is in and who is out in the hands of that perfect one. I believe Jesus is perfect love and per that, that in Jesus, perfect love and perfect justice meet. So I'm content to kind of leave judgment in his hands. It says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that God desires that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. That's God's heart, that everyone would be saved. So we can trust him to do everything he can to save all that he can. Let me say that again. We can trust him to do everything he can to save all that he can. That's his heart. That doesn't mean we're teaching some kind of a universalism, that it doesn't matter what you believe or what you don't believe, that you know all roads lead to the top of the mountain you know, I now live in New Hampshire, and every week we see in the news that some wayward hiker has to be rescued off Mount Washington uh, because they took the wrong trail. All trails do not go to the top of the mountain. Some trails lead people right over a cliff or into unnavigable terrain. So no, I don't believe in that kind of universalism. So here's a bad joke about that. How many Unitarians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, the Unitarians wish to issue the following statement. We choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that a light bulb works for you, that is fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship with your light bulb and present it next month at our annual Light Bulb Sunday service, in which we'll explore an, a number of light bulb traditions 
including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. And just to be fair, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, none, because Presbyterians don't believe in change. Anyway, this kind of philosophical universalism was not the message of Jesus. But I am willing to keep open the door, or just crack the window a bit, on the possibility that Christ's love is so great that his mercy can extend to everyone in the end, that all people will be included in the circle of his grace. And that would be the greatest slap in the face to Satan, that hell would be empty. I don't see that in today's passage from John 3, to be honest. But I do see the wideness of God's mercy taught in other places in Scripture. So I am content to live kind of with that tension while I also do everything I can to call people into a conscious relationship with God through Christ. I'm very passionate about that and have always been. Believing in the wideness of God's mercy does not excuse us from sharing the good news with others. doesn't let us off the hook for sharing our faith. We should share Jesus' sense of motivation, and his sense of urgency. I mean, he had a sense of urgency out there, like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep. That should be in our heart every day, that sense of urgency. Now, Jesus goes on in John chapter 3 to say that a lot of people are unbelievers because of the stuff in their lives that would be exposed if they did believe. They might have to change, so they don't want to come to Jesus. They stay away from the light. The light of God is too revealing. If you walk from a dark room into the light, it hurts your eyes. And some folks don't want to come to Jesus because this kind of light would be painful. There's a story that when the World War II, when the soldiers liberated the concentration camps, that often the prisoners had such a difficult time coming out of their barracks because they had been locked in there in the dark for so long that actually coming out into the light was scary and painful and frightening for them. And it can be the same for people as they think that the light of God might be too intense and they're unwilling to change. Think of that rich young man in Mark chapter 10. He says to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus gives him the answer that he expected to hear, sort of the catechism answer out of the rule book. Jesus said, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, etc., etc. And the young man says, check, check, check. I'm good on all those things. I've obeyed the whole law. So he's pretty arrogant. He's pretty self-deceived. And in verse 21, it's so great. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Because he loved him, Jesus then went on to tell him the hard news. Jesus said, well, then sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the guy's face fell. The air went out of his balloon because he had many possessions. And so was Jesus against money or wealth? No. Jesus just knew that this was that guy's issue. And so he shines some light on it, and you can almost hear the wheel spinning in the guy's head. You feel the momentary struggle in his mind. Do I believe in Jesus? And will I no longer worship the things that I have, my success, my riches, my status, the place where I'm king of the hill, where I'm running the show, and I'm deciding what to do with my life? And we're told that he finally and sadly walks away from Jesus. The light was too bright require too much, and he leaves the light and goes back into the darkness of his own selfish way. He made a choice, potentially with eternal consequences, but he was young. He still had time in his life to rethink that choice, and I hope he did. And how hard for Jesus to watch that young man go back into the night. 
But Jesus didn't run after him and says, hey, I was only kidding. We'll work it out somehow. No, he let him go. And I think it broke Christ's heart. You know, here's the main thing Jesus, I think, is saying to us today. If we reject God's mercy in this life, then we are choosing God's judgment in the next. If we reject God's mercy in this life, then we are choosing God's judgment in the next. It's as simple as that. In the year 2000, Johnny Cash gave an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. He talked about his drug addictions and his spiritual and emotional consequences that had on his life. And he said this, and I quote, To put myself in such a low state that I couldn't communicate with God. There's no lonelier place to be. I was separated from God and I wasn't even trying to call on him. I knew that there was no line of communication. There was nothing left of me. I had drifted so far away from God and every stabilizing force in my life that I felt there was no hope. My separation from him, the deepest and most ravaging of all the various kinds of loneliness I'd ever felt over the years. It seemed finally complete. I thought I'd left him, but he hadn't left me. I felt something very powerful start to happen to me, a sensation of utter peace, of clarity and sobriety. And then my mind started focusing on God. I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my own destiny. I was not in charge of my own death. The greatest joy of my life was that I no longer felt separated from him. And now he is my counselor, my rock of ages to stand upon. Ted Olson of Christianity Today wrote after Johnny Cash's death, Now on the other side of the river, the man in black wears glorious white, face to face with his Lord. A number of years ago, I participated in a Presbyterian panel that produced a theological statement that was adopted by my former denomination. It was called Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that statement said it this way, Jesus Christ is the only Savior and Lord, and all people everywhere are called to place their faith hope, and love in him. No one is saved by virtue of inherent goodness or admirable living. For, and then he quotes from Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. No one is saved apart from God's gracious redemption in Jesus Christ. Yet, and this is the part I want you to hear, and yet we do not presume to limit the sovereign freedom of God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. Thus we neither restrict the grace of God to those who profess explicit faith in Christ, nor assume that all people are saved regardless of faith. Grace, love, and communion belong to God and are not ours to determine. Ultimately, it's not left up to us to judge people not to judge who's in and who's out, and I am thankful for that. At the final hour, God is not going to turn to me and say, Jeff, what do you think about that person? What do you think? Why don't you pass judgment on this one? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thankfully, no. Those decisions are in God's hands. We think we live in a time when no one wants to hear about hell and judgment, and yet maybe people are hungering for a deeper reality where God is more than just a God of simplistic love, more than just a Winnie the Pooh kind of God. People, I think, maybe are hungering for a reality where God does bring a moral center to this universe, where God does hold people accountable, but where God does offer grace and forgiveness and draws people 
to believing in Jesus. I'm content to live in that tension, the tension between God's justice and God's love, because I trust who Jesus is. I hope you do too. Have a great week.